Amen. Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good? All right, guys, it's been a full and fun week. Oh, it's Kids Week, if you're new, or maybe you don't have kids. You're like, what's Kids Week? Well, it's not VBS. We're not against VBS. VBS is great. Lots of great churches in our city do VBS. Kids Week is something different. Here's what Kids Week is. It's when families serve our city in Jesus' name, okay? Now, we had, this is cool, we had over 160 families, and some of you have lots of kids, so we had over 350 kids. We part, yeah, that's right, you can clap. We partnered with over over a dozen organizations. And let me just tell you why we do this. There's a couple reasons. One, we want to help families help their kids taste mission and mercy at a young age. I mean, maybe you don't know this. If you grew up in a Christian home, it's like, it's very, very easy, or you're raising Christian kids. It's very, very easy for them to think that Christianity is about what they don't do, right? We don't say those words. We don't go to those places. We don't listen to that music. We don't watch those movies. It's like, well, what do we do? Is all we're known for what we don't do? Is my life just less fun than the other kid's life? Is that what Christianity is? And it's like, no, we're actually, hey, listen, we want you to taste mission. We want you to taste adventure. We want you to meet needs in Jesus' name. Another reason we do it is because, man, our kids need to see what real need is, right? Real need is, I, is not, I don't have an iPad. Agree? That's not real need. Real need is, wow, there are people, there are kids, and they don't know if they're gonna get their next meal. That's real need. Great, we want, to, we want them to know that. So we're, and also we just love our city. So here's what we're doing. We, we partner with 13 organizations. And, uh, and, and what, why we do this is we think of collaboration, okay? As a necessity, not a nicety. Because there's lots of needs in our city. You know, what are you gonna do about poverty? What are you gonna do about homelessness? What are you gonna do about the unborn? It's like, well, the answer is usually you don't know and I don't know. So we partner with organizations who go, we have the systems, we have the structures, we have the strategies, and we wanna, we need help. So we're like, great, we're gonna help you. And so guys, it was incredible. So my family, we, we did uh, HOPE. HOPE stands for Helping Our People Eat. It was, it's an organization in an under-resourced area. Beautiful uh, opportunity. We went there, we helped with a garden that's gonna give food to that area. We helped organize produce. We prayed for the people there. And then the kids, they got to wash the vans outside. And I walk out there and my six-year-old son is washing the van with his stomach. Okay, so <laughs> six-year-olds, yeah. So the kids had, here's, that's the whole point. The kids had a ton of fun. We met needs in Jesus' name. And we want to express to our city, listen, we love our city. We do. We love the, the quarter million people in our city. We want to serve and bless and reach our city. So let's pray for the families in our church uh, that our kids would taste mission and mercy at a young age. And let's pray for our city, and then we're gonna dive into 1 Samuel. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our city. We love Winston-Salem. We love it. We love the quarter million people who live here. We love people, people grew up here, people moved here, people are here for all different types of reasons. Lord, and we, we have an, uh, a city vision, not a church vision. We wanna reach every man, woman, and child in our city. And that means we have to collaborate with all expressions of the body of Christ. So we thank you for all of the nonprofits who are meeting felt and forever needs in Jesus' name, Lord. We pray for our families in our church, just that our kids would grow up and they think, they would genuinely think following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus is the greatest thing they could do with their lives. And that when they leave here, if they go off to college or somewhere else, that they would think, how can I connect to a local church to follow Christ in college? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, type two, turn to 1 Samuel 17. We're in a series on uh, King David. He's the most famous person outside of Jesus in the whole Bible, mentioned over a thousand times, mentioned in 66 chapters. And we're in a series, we're in week two of a seven-week series called David. And by the way, if you're new, let me encourage you to stay for the whole series. I mean, if you, if you came today, there's only five weeks left, right? And you really, one sermon, uh, one Sunday, one song. I mean, you, you, don't, you can't know what our church is about. You gotta come for like four or five, six weeks to kind of get, you know, what's the big picture? What do we really believe? Who's really here? What do we really like? So we hope you'll come back. And, and then let me say this to some of you who've been coming around for a while. Uh, if, if you are not in a community group, okay? I don't know how to say this. If you're not in a community group, you're not gonna get everything that you could out of this series or really any series. 
Because we're a church of community groups. We're not a church with community groups. You go, well, how's that different, okay? Well, a church with community groups kind of says, hey, this is something that we do. Uh, we've, we've added it on. It's a program. We've duct taped it on. And it's optional. And it's like, if you, if you have time, go, go and do that. But there's other things you could do if you don't want to do that. That's not us. We are a church of community groups. Basically, it means that our community groups are an essential extension and expression of our church. And it's, it, they're sermon guided. Throughout the week, we're talking about the sermon in the scripture, and it creates alignment in our church. And it creates, it, it helps you with the parts that you really need. It's like, do you need more Bible knowledge? Well, probably not. I mean, it'll be helpful, and that's what we're going to, you're going to get some when you're here. But really, what we need is we need help applying what we already know. So, by the way, if, if you're like, how do I get in a community group? You have to get, go through our weekender to get into a community group. Our weekender is July 8th and 9th, which is two weeks away. You'll be hearing more about that at the end of the service. Okay, so turn to 1 Samuel 17. This is the series on David. If you've got one of those real Bibles, open it up and turn left, okay? And you'll eventually get to a book called 1 Samuel, okay? Uh, if you've got a device, Google it. 1 Samuel 17. Guys, this is the... Okay, so David's the most famous uh, person in the Bible outside of Jesus. And now we're talking about the most famous story, maybe the most familiar story, maybe the favorite story, the story of David and Goliath, right? So I've got two boys, also got an older daughter, but I've got two boys, they're eight and they're six, and both of them, their favorite story is David and Goliath, which is kind of scary for me. I'm like, why do you like a story so much about a little person cutting a big person's head off, okay? <laughs> I'm gonna be sleeping with one eye open as I think about you guys. No, but you'll, you'll see this. A lot of young boys, they love, they love Daniel and the Lion's Den. They love David and Goliath. These stories speak deeply to us, right? It's a hero story. We love hero stories, but more than a hero story, it's an underdog story, right? We love the underdog. You love Rudy, don't you? You love Remember the Titans. We, we love when the, the movie Miracle, when the U.S. hockey team, against all odds, wins. We love it when the last, last seeded and most odds against it Ray, uh, horse just won the Kentucky Derby. We love it when a 15 seed beats a number two seed in March Madness. It's just like everything in us is like, yes! It's an underdog story. So what we're gonna see today is David as the underdog. David is gonna move in this story from obscurity to popularity. That's what's gonna happen. So before this, no one knows who David is. He's a shepherd. He's somebody else's son. He's somebody else's brother. Uh, you know, and today, after today, after you kill Goliath, he can't go out to eat with his family anymore, right? <laughs> There's no more private life. He only has a public life after this. And so and here's the big idea for today, because you've heard the story. You know where I'm going. We're going to read 50 verses. It's a lot of text. You know the story, basically. It's David versus Goliath, okay? And we're going to approach this three ways. And you, if you take notes, this is helpful to understand this. We're going to approach this historically, okay? Historically, it's like, yep, David was a real person. Goliath was a real person. This is a real battle. It's historical. We're going to talk about it. We're going to deal with it, you know, what we would call theologically. In other words, it points us to Christ. And we'll see that and how Christ fights the battles for us. But then it's very personal and it's very practical, okay? And I came here this morning to tell you that the point of this passage for you is that you need to face the giants in your life and you need to fight them, okay? So David or Goliath's a real giant, but we're gonna see you have giants metaphorically and spiritually. Let me tell you what a giant is. A giant is anything that stands between you and what God wants for your life. A giant is anything that stands between you and what God has promised for your life, right? Isn't that what the Goliath is? What is Goliath? Well, he's this massive giant that stands in the way of the promised land, what God's promised them, and their victory over the Philistines, which is what God promised them. And I wanna encourage you today because some of you have been avoiding and you have been ignoring the giants in your life, right? The giant could be a person. It probably is for you. It's like, it's your dad. You know, it's a, you haven't talked to him in a while or you're so overwhelmed or intimidated. It's your ex-whatever. 
For some of you, it's a sin in your life and it is just massive and it's overwhelming and it's defining you. For some of you, it's something in your past. This happens to people all the time. It's like, well, you can't tell anybody. Your spouse doesn't even know. But you wake up at two in the morning when everybody else is sleeping and it haunts you. Why did I do that? Sometimes it's something that happened to you. Sometimes it's just something that you've been avoiding. Do you know that what happens when you avoid something? It grows. Do you think that Goliath came out of the womb nine foot six? His mother would not be very happy about that. You know, no, he grew, right? And when we avoid things, they grow. I promise you this. And I, and I tell you these things so you know them now. When you avoid things, they grow. Anybody who's in our office and, you know, they've been married for 12 years and their marriage is falling apart, it's like, oh gosh, we're gonna try to help and we're gonna try to get you the best counseling. But part of the problem is there's 10 years of lying in this marriage. Part of the problem is there's lack of love and lack of respect that started in year two and has never been talked about. Part of it is there's terrible communication between the two of you. Part of it is there's lack of trust across eight years. It's like, so what's the, the, the idea is we have to fight, you have to fight your giants when they're small because they only keep growing, right? What happens if a tax bill shows up at your, you know, to, to your house and you're like, oh, no, I don't wanna look at this. You don't even wanna open it. You ever get one of those, you're like, what's in here? What's gonna happen if you avoid or ignore that? It'll go away, sure, you know, no. It comes back with more and more and more bills. So I want us to read this story, understand it's something that happened historically, understand it's gonna point us to Christ and I'll show you how. But understand, I need, you need to understand this, for 2,000 years, the church has been encouraged by this passage to face the giants in their life. So let's do that. All right, verse one, here's what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they gathered at Succoth, or Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Ezekah and Ephes Demim. Okay, those are hard words to say. Don't worry about those words. Okay? <laughs> Don't worry about those places. Worry, look at the two words, Philistines and battle. Those are the two words I want us to focus on. So it's in the context of war, right? Israel's at war all the time. I don't have time to get into it. Christians have written articles on just war theory, and sometimes it's needed and necessary to get into war, okay? But, but what we see here is this is an ancient battle, which we glamorize ancient battles, right? We 300, Braveheart, Gladiator, we romanticize and glamorize and sanitize battles. I mean, war's always horrible, right? We've, we've had people in our church who we've had to walk through PTSD because they were in the middle, war in the Middle East, right? And they saw things and they experienced things. And, and war's horrible enough now when you're dropping bombs at a distance and shooting at a distance and being shot at at a distance. But war back then, you stabbed your enemy and watched them die right in front of you and smelled their breath and knew what they had for breakfast. And even though they didn't understand disease and infection at great length, uh, in almost all these battles, the men fought completely naked because they knew there was, there was less likely that, that, that they were gonna die afterwards and get, they didn't understand all this but get infected. And when a battle would end, the, the first thing that they would do is they would try to figure out what blood was theirs and what blood was their enemies. And they were hoping more blood was their enemies than was theirs. So you just have to understand, this is a scary environment that we're parachuting into and reading about here. They're in a battle. And then they're in a battle with the Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines? Well, they showed up in Genesis 10, okay? So they've been God's, enemies and these people's enemies for a long time. Do you ever feel like you have the same enemies, right? We're using this kind of metaphorically, spiritually speaking. It's like some of you have been dealing with love of money forever. And you thought, well, no, 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 no. I, I'm dealing with love of money because I don't have a job yet. When I get a job, I won't have, have love of money. And then you're like, well, no, no, I have a job, but I don't make that much money. So I only love money because I don't have a lot of money. But when I have a lot of money, I won't love money. And then you have a lot of money and then you love money. How many people thought, oh, that's it, I'm gonna fight this giant of lust, you know, I'm in middle school, I'm gonna fight it. Oh, no, there it is in high school. Oh, it'll go, you hear this one before? It'll go away when I get married. People think that all the time. Well, no, lust is that which is forbidden, so that never goes away. 
Because that's different than marriage. That's different than sex and marriage. This is something completely different. And people find that all of a sudden they're sneaking and they're giving into behaviors in their 50s that they started doing in their teens. And it's the same enemies. Money, sex, power. So they're fighting these enemies, and I want you to see what happens. Verse 2. And Saul, you know, he was yesterday's man. We talked about him last week. He's the current king. He no longer has the anointing of God, but he has the title of king. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on one mountain, on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So there's, don't think, you know, massive mountains. Think, you know, hills and neither wanted to give up the high ground. That's why they stayed up on the mountains. Verse four, here, here, now we're introduced to Goliath. Again, historical figure, yes. But what is said about him as a giant speaks to the giants in our lives. Don't you see this? And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, and he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. So a couple things I want us to notice about, about the giant Goliath, which points to the giants in our life. First of all, uh, they have names that terrify us, right? Uh, first of all, his name is the champion. Does anyone here want to fight the champion? I want to fight the loser. That's who I want to fight. And, but in a serious note, here's what happens. that The reason that giants are so intimidating in our lives is they've taken so many other people down. Right? I mean, some of you like alcoholism. That's a giant in your life for sure. And you're like, yeah, it took dad down. And it took Uncle Frank down. And it took grandpa down. I have watched this. You'll see this. Anxiety. Oh, it's a giant. Mom's always been anxious. And grandma was always anxious. And Aunt Sally was always anxious. It don't discourage you from even fighting it because you're like, well, this giant is so massive and everybody in my family has always struggled with it and it has taken down so many other people. The second thing we're told about it is not just his name, it's his size, it's massive, right? Our giants look massive. Now, it says six cubits in a span, depending on what text you read in Hebrew and how you translate cubit and span, it's somewhere between six foot nine and nine foot six. I know that's a big difference, okay? But the whole point is, even if he's six foot nine, that's LeBron James. And the average Israeli man at that time was five foot three. So think Danny DeVito, okay? <laughs> that's right. Danny DeVito does not want to fight LeBron James under any circumstances. And so these giants, they're massive. Then there's this appearance. He's wearing bronze, right? That was, uh, they were, this was the bronze era. They were, the Philistines were some of the first adopters and users of bronze. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's more clear, uh, people who understand Hebrew, say that the, the language of how he's dressed is, is it's describing him almost as looking like a reptile, which you go, if you know the Bible, you go, this is interesting because why? Because our first battle was with the reptile, the serpent, right? This is why we've always been, I mean, this is why we're always scared of reptiles, right? I mean, when alien movies come, are they fuzzy bears? No, they're always reptilian in character. It's like there's something deep in us that are afraid of reptiles. So he looks like this scary reptile. And then watch what happens. Verse seven. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. And it's not just his size. The size of our giants are intimidating. The name of our giants are intimidating. What they've done in the past is intimidating, but look at verse eight. It's what they say to us that's the most intimidating. And he stood and shouted, right? They're so loud in our lives. Sometimes they say, you will never, or you can't, or you shouldn't, they're loud. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out 
to draw up for battle. We're going to talk about that. The first thing our giants say is, why are you even trying to fight? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down. Notice he calls them servants of Saul. He doesn't say servants of God. Our giants always say, why are you even trying to fight? And our giants never mention God. Verse 9, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The third thing he basically says is, if you try to fight, you're going to lose and you're going to serve us. Satan's greatest strategy for the non-Christian is to deceive that person so that they can't come to an understanding of the gospel and do not understand the word of God and are deceived about their own sinful condition and their own spiritual condition. That's, that's Satan's number one strategy for the non-Christian is deception. Satan's number one strategy for the believer is discouragement. And all you have to do is think about it for about five minutes and it makes sense. It's like, okay, well, if you have the Holy Spirit, well, that's good, and you have the word of God, okay, so I've got God's word, and I've got the power of the gospel, that's great, and I've got spiritual gifts, and I have forgiveness, and I have mission and purpose in this life, and I'm heading to heaven, and then I have the church as my family. It's like, what's, what's wrong? I mean, I've got everything I need. Well, then I will discourage you from doing anything about any of it. So how, how many of you, right? It's like, dude, don't even try to fight this giant. Have you ever felt that before? It's like, you know, here's what it might sound like to you. Listen, man, sorry, your marriage is always gonna be a five out of 10. That's just how it is, deal with it. It's been like that for like a decade. I mean, there are people who have good marriages. You're not one of them. It's like, well, then you just get discouraged. Like, why would I even try? Why would I even fight? Why would I even bring this up? Why would, I even, why would we even try to do date night again? Why would I even try to apologize? Why would we even plan a vacation? It's like, it's not even gonna work, right? Dude, stop praying for your prodigal kid. There are prodigal kids that come home. Yours is not one of them. You've messed them up too bad. And quit reaching out to them because it only makes things worse. It's like, oh gosh. And, th and the hard thing about this is, by the way, when you first try to make something better, it often does get worse first because you're dealing with something you've never dealt with before, right? It's like, okay, so there's something in your marriage you've, not, you've been avoiding and you need to talk about it and you've never talked about it. What's gonna happen when you talk about it? Obviously, it's gonna make the marriage worse immediately because your spouse is gonna be like, what's up with you? Why are you bringing this up? So you're gonna have to go through all these hard things. And what, what Goliath is basically saying is, hey, listen, number one, he doesn't mention God. He doesn't want us to think about God. He doesn't want us to have a grace-centered, God-centered view of it. Number two, he just wants us to not even show up for the battle. Number three, he wants us to feel like if we fight it, it's gonna be worthless. If you fight this, here's what's gonna happen. It's gonna cost you a lot of time. Your counseling's gonna be expensive. It's gonna cost you a lot of time. It's gonna cost you a lot of energy. It's gonna cost you a lot of effort. And in the end, you'll probably basically be in the same place, if not a worse place. So this is what he says. I want you to see what happens next. Verse 10, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So here's what's happening. Uh, this is what they call representative warfare. This doesn't happen anymore, but instead of nation fighting against nation, which, you know, it's like, well, when you do that, hundreds die on this side and hundreds die on this side or thousands die on this side and thousands die on this side. Instead, they'd say, hey, why don't we each a leader or pick one person from each side and why don't they fight each other? And each one will represent each side. So from Israel, why don't you have somebody that represents Israel and fights for God's people? And if that person wins, his victory will count for all of those people. Now, when I just said that, if you're a Christian and you know your Bible at all, you should go, this sounds familiar. Somebody fights for us against our enemy, and when he wins, his victory is counted as our victory? Yeah, that's what Jesus did. I mean, this is why David, yes, it's a historical person, but he points to Jesus. I mean, is it a coincidence that we have a shepherd here 
who's misunderstood by his brothers, who stands before between God's enemy and God's people and wins a decisive victory for them? No, this is exactly the heart of the gospel. What David is going to be is he's going to be a hero. He's going to be a savior. He's going to be a substitute. He's going to do something for the people of Israel and in their place, and that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Now, we, we don't do this representative warfare anymore, but if you've seen the movie Troy, this is what happens at the beginning of the movie with Brad Pitt. He's, he's fighting another man. This, this is what I don't, I think he was partly kidding, but when Russia went to war with Ukraine, this, uh, Elon Musk tweeted out that he wanted to go to combat one-on-one -on -one with Vladimir Putin. So this is that kind of idea of a representative warfare. And look what happens in verse 11. It says this, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, the words of Goliath, of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is one of two times we're told how afraid they are. We'll, get, we'll revisit that. Now, verse 12, David's mentioned for the first time. David is going to come on the scene through service. Now, David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next Abinadab, and third Shema. Now, if you, you recognize those names, because those are the three oldest sons who when Samuel came in chapter 16, passed by and said, the Lord did not choose these. Verse 17, David was the youngest. Again, mentioned, he's the littlest, he's the youngest, he's the least. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. See, what we're gonna see is David is gonna come on the scene right now through service. And we said this before, but when you serve, you get to see things no one else gets to see. When you decide I'm gonna serve, oftentimes open doors and opportunities that otherwise would never be there are gonna be there. And so David is gonna go from, we'll see this in a moment, he's gonna go from delivery boy to deliverer. Just in a moment, watch this. His dad basically says, I need you to go down and bring some food. Look, for 40 days, the Philistine, this is verse 16, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers and also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. This is the first charcuterie board in scripture. You see it? It's right there, bread and cheese and all this. So, I mean, this is, David is working for DoorDash. David is working for Uber Eats. That's what he's doing, okay? See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So David goes down. Look what it says next. It, it, it tells kind of the story of him going down there, seeing his brothers. Well, let's pick the story up in verse 23. As he talked with them, so he finally gets down and sees his brothers. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. So this is the transition. David is going to see what everybody else sees, but see it differently. He's going to hear what everybody else hears, but hear it differently. David is going to make a difference because he's able to see and hear things differently. Look what happens. But in contrast to David, one last time, we're just told how fearful everybody else is. Look at this. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So this is a story about many things. It's about fighting our giants. One of the things that we're gonna have to do to fight our giants is we're going to have to step forward in courage, with courage, even when we're afraid, right? The Bible says that fear is not just a feeling. I mean, fear is a feeling. But that fear is a spirit, and God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. And so what happens here is Saul, all of his men, they're afraid so much so that they run away. And what we need is courage. Now, here's what courage is, okay? 
Courage is, I love it, someone said this, courage is fear that said its prayers. That's what it is. It's, if you, you, ever, you ever see a story on the news, like somebody runs into a building and saves people, or somebody gets back from war, and they saved you know, some of their band of brothers on, on the field, and it's always the same thing. Everyone's like, how did you do it? You must have been so afraid. And they're all like, yeah, I was so unbelievably afraid, but I moved forward in spite of being unbelievably afraid. See, guys, what we need is we need to be a church. I'm going to show you how from Scripture, how to have courage. We, we, courage is the virtue. People who've thought about this say courage is the virtue under every other virtue. For example, like say you want to be an honest person, which would be, I think we want to be honest, and we probably want to raise our kids to be honest. So it's like, okay, be honest. It's like, well, good luck being honest if you don't have courage. Good luck. Because on the way to being honest, you're going to have to actually stand forward and say, it's like, okay, Okay, so that, that's that. Okay, then you say, okay, well, I would actually like to be the kind of person who has hard conversations. Well, good luck with that if you don't have courage. Well, I'd like to be the kind of person who shares Jesus with other people. Because I love Jesus and I love people and I want to be evangelistic. Well, good luck with that if you don't have courage. It's like everything in your life, you need to have courage. Now, the Bible, interestingly enough, at the end of the book of Revelation, it's got this whole huge list of people that get thrown into the lake of fire. You know, and it's all the people you think, like the liars and the adulterers and the, it goes on and on and on. And in the final list, it says, and the cowards. The Bible speaks of being as, you're not going to hear this anywhere else, outside of churches. The Bible says being a coward is a sin. It is not okay for you to be a weak, pathetic, passive coward. There is way too much at stake in your life and everybody else that you're connected to. And so I want us to see the story of David because he's going to be contrasted with Saul. The reason Saul in part stays yesterday's man, we talked about it last week, is because he's unwilling to fight the battles of today. So I want you to see what happens. So David decides, I'm gonna do something. Look at this, verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king, so here's what happens. Saul's afraid to fight the battle, so he tries to motivate other people to fight the battle. Look. And the king will enrich the man who kills him, okay? With great riches. So what's the one motivation he's gonna use to get the guy to fight? Here, you'll be rich. Okay, how about this? and will give him his daughter, great. So then you get money and you get sex and you get to be in the king's family. And make his father's house free in Israel and none of your family ever has to pay taxes again. And everybody said, amen, right? But, but what's interesting is these, these are what are called secondary motivations, okay? Secondary motivations are good motivations, but they're not enough, right? What we're gonna see with David is, and this sounds so cliche and so trite, and if you've been in church, you know what I'm gonna say. But the, what we're gonna see when David, because David's gonna share his heart as he battles against Goliath. He's gonna say why he's doing what he's doing. And his answer is, I'm doing this because I genuinely want God to be seen as great and because I love people. And let me just tell you that the, the deepest motivations in the human heart for genuine transformation to fight the giants in your life are God's glory and others' good. Like, let me just give you a, a classic low-level example. I don't know, say you wanna lose weight. You, wanna get, you need to get in shape. You need to be healthy. It's like, well... You could have secondary motivations. Secondary motivations is I want to have a beach body. Secondary motivation is I'd like people to look at me and think I'm the kind of person who takes care of myself. I'd like to be attractive to other people. It's like, well, fair enough. We're not saying those are all bad and those are secondary motivations. They're not, they're not going to be enough across time. It's like, you know, the person who really changes their weight is the person who says, I am dishonoring God with the way that I approach food and exercise. And I have been a horrible stewardship of my body. And I need to repent of this because God does not look great with how I take care of my body. It's like, whoo! And then the second one is, and you know what? And I'd like to be around for my kids and my grandkids. 
And I'm not going to be able to really be the active father and the engaged grandfather that I want to be if I don't get my health under control. It's like, you want to talk to someone who's deeply motivated to do the right thing. That's a little different than I'd like a beach body. And I want to lose 10 pounds so I look a little lighter on the scale. That's a completely different motivation. And we need primary motivations in our life, not just secondary. God will use both. But we need the primary. David is primarily motivated. Look here. So if we go to verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be for the man who kills him. Now, this is interesting. So if you remember chapter 16, this is why it's good to come for the whole series and read the whole, whole, whole sections that we're talking about because you'll see how it's connected. Last week, everybody only sees David's appearance except God sees his heart. Remember that? His brothers, his dad, even Samuel, they only see the appearance of David, and then God says, nope, he's a man after my own heart. That's who I want. Well, what's interesting is in this story, here we are, next page, next chapter, everybody only sees the appearance of Goliath. He's big, he's got this armor on. David is the only one who sees his heart. This, guy's, this guy doesn't know God. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's defying God. David's the first person in the whole story to mention God. Saul forgets about God. The army forgets about God. Goliath doesn't know about God. David comes up. And then if you look at what I just read you there, David is also the only person who asks some questions that nobody else has been asking. If you want to know how does spiritual leadership take place in a place, well, here's how it happens. Men and women show up somewhere and they ask questions that everybody else in that city, in that neighborhood, in that business, in that apartment complex, on that college campus has never asked. So you'll see this. You'll see leaders show up somewhere every once in a while spiritual leaders, and they'll say something like, why hasn't anyone talked to her? Why? She's a gossip. Why, is there? She's been here for 10 years, and nobody has said anything to her. Why hasn't somebody done something about this? Right? It's like the new family members, like the brother-in-law or the father-in-law or the sister-in-law, and they enter the family, and they say, why hasn't anyone talked to grandpa about drinking? Oh, he always does that. Why hasn't anyone said anything to him? Why hasn't anyone stepped up? It's the woman who moves into a new neighborhood and says, there's like six Christian women in this neighborhood. Why hasn't anyone started a Bible study for non-Christians in this neighborhood? This is how the gospel has always gone forward. It's like some, it's usually young people. It's usually young people who say, why haven't we done this? Like, how does the gospel get to North Africa? Well, I don't know the whole story, but somebody sometimes said, why haven't we gone there? And everyone else goes, I don't know why we haven't gone there. And then that person said, well, then I'll go there. The reason that our city, and I love the city of Winston-Salem, but our city is sick. It's behind. It's spiritually weak. And it's of decades and decades and decades and decades of nobody saying, why hasn't anyone done anything about this? So my question to you is, I mean, what are you passionate about? We're not all passionate about the same things. What problem do you wanna solve? We don't all wanna solve the same problem. What bothers you? What bothers you doesn't bother everybody else. I mean, God's doing something in your life. What do you want to do? That's the adventure of your life. The adventure of your life, following Christ and helping others find and follow Christ and figuring out what problems you'd like to solve and what suffering you would like to alleviate. That'd be a great thing to do. So David starts asking questions, but you know what's going to happen. It's like, as soon as you step out to do anything for, for God, guess who's going to discourage you? The people closest to you, unfortunately. Look at, look at verse 20, uh, 28. Now, Eliab, it's like, man, can you just be a good older brother for one time? Can you just step up and encourage your younger brother? He's, he wants to do something about Goliath. 
Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you see the passive aggressive way he's, you know, hey, you're a shepherd and, and there's some good shepherds and there's shepherds who have a lot of sheep and then there's you. <laughs> and you just have a few sheep. What you're doing is insignificant and you're on the bottom rung of even what you're doing. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And then here's what they do as well. They, they question our motives. It's like, dude, I'm trying. I'm, I'm not doing this for money. Checking my heart. Trying to keep my conscience clear. Look what happens. David says this. Have you ever felt this? And David said, what have I done now? Just trying to make my marriage better. What are you doing? I'm just trying to fight this giant in my life. I'm just trying to obey God. What have I done? Why are you giving me such a hard time? And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So here's what happens. Uh, faith, David's faith seems strange in a world of unbelief. David's courage seems strange in a world of fear. David's conviction seems strange in a world of tolerance. And so this is what's happening with David. And, and you might say, well, why is Eliab you know, against him? Well, th this happens all the time, right? If you're gonna fix your marriage or you're gonna try to get healthy or you're gonna try to read your Bible consistently or you're gonna try to make disciples, you're gonna try to evangelize someone or I don't know, you're gonna try to be generous or you're gonna try to live on less money. It's like, watch what happens to everybody else around you. They won't like it. And it doesn't make sense at first. You're like, why don't they like it? Because it exposes and reveals what they're lacking. It exposes and reveals what they're unwilling to do themselves. And so what Eliab, it's like, man, David having all this courage basically shows my lack of courage. David having all this belief shows my lack of belief. And so they discourage him. We see this, oftentimes we'll see this when somebody wants to go into full-time ministry. And sometimes the people closest to them it's like, the, it's, it's wealthy mom and dad, you know, who spent their whole lives in materialism and a love for money and making their kids super comfortable. And their kid's like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to be a journeyman, which is a two-year mission thing. And I'm going to have to raise support and I'm going to have to go out. And it's like, mom and dad spend almost all of their time trying to discourage them. And the way the church has gone forward for generations has been young people taking steps of faith, often <laughs> challenging the, the older, comfortable generation to do something about the problems that we see. And so I want you to see what happens next. Now he moves and, he, and uh, he, inter he interacts with Saul for the first time. When the words of David <coughs> spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. Saul, this is verse 31. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So he's even discouraged by the leader of the army, by the king himself. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there were, came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. How powerful is this? You have David reminding Saul of God. You, you need people. This is one of the final last, um, you know, this is one of the final interactions um, that we see between David and Saul before he goes off to battle. And what we see here is David reminds Saul of God. Some of you, you, you need this. This is why we're like getting community groups, have Christian community, because sometimes your marriages 
a complete wreck and you're about to use the D word and you know, you're, you're just like, you're just done and like you've, you've already got the lawyers or whatever it is. And somebody comes in and says, hold on, have you forgotten about God in this whole situation? You're like, oh my gosh, yes. Some of you, you get in some kind of addiction. It's like, we just, we just feel completely trapped. It's like, do we have completely thought about the future and thought about our lives apart from the grace of God and apart from God? David reminds Saul of God. Look at this. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And then this is the last good thing, or one of the last good things we ever see Saul do. Saul, in response to hearing about God, blesses David to fight the battle before him. Look at this. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. By the way, this is what every parent hopes eventually to be able to say to their kids, Right? You can't keep your kids safe forever. I mean, you know, you don't want to make your kids safe. You want to make them strong. What are you going to do? You're going to bubble wrap them and put styrofoam all around them? Keep them in the room and order all their food in? You know, it's like you, some people wouldn't mind doing that. Keep their kids safe. Like, what kind of life is that? It's like, what would be better is how do I make my kids strong so I don't have to worry about their safety? I can't protect them forever, so how do I prepare them for the future? So we all need people in our lives who bless and say, go fight that battle. That's worth fighting. That's what Saul does. He blesses David for the battle he needs to fight. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is maybe one of the things I want us to understand when we come to motivation. How do we get the motivation? Because how, how did David get the courage to fight Goliath? The answer is not grit your teeth, right? That, this is not a self-help sermon. This is not a like, you know, just don't think about it and jump, right? Run off the cliff, jump into the water. Don't even think about it, just do it. This isn't what, it, what I'm saying here. What we see with David is the reason that he had the courage and the strength to fight the battles of tomorrow and today is because he remembered God's past victories for him. Do you see this? He says, hey, listen, I, there was a lion, there was a bear. God d delivered me out of the hands of both. Now look, I have seen a bear in person, not in a zoo, one time. <laughs> and as he was about 200 yards away and we saw each other <laughs> and I went a running, okay? I, I, don't, I don't do that whole, if you see a bear, stand still, okay? I think the bears wrote that, okay? It's like, no, I don't, I don't do that. I, I went running in the opposite direction. But he says, he says I, I killed a bear, I killed a, a lion. Now, here's what I'm trying to, and this is so important to get, I hope you'll get it. He's saying, the reason I can trust God in the future is I've seen God be faithful in the past. Now, all he had was his own life uh, in a little bit of scripture. We have the whole testimony of scripture and we have the cross of Christ. So here, here's how this works. When you look and you realize that Jesus Christ has already won the war, it encourages you to fight all of your battles. And let me show you how they're connected. Because we can look to the past and we can look to what Christ has done on the cross and it can encourage us for future battles. Let me give you a couple examples. Because Jesus defeated the devil, which we're told in Colossians 2 and other places he did, because he defeated the devil, now I can fight against the devil and say no to temptation. It's rooted in what God's already done in the past. So I can fight the battles of today. Because Jesus overcame death, I can face death and dying, which we're all gonna eventually face, with hope. Because Jesus, because Jesus fulfilled the legal requirements of the law, I can now have a new relationship with the law and enjoy it and obey it. Because Jesus overcame darkness at the cross, I can now walk in the light. When you see those connections, you're encouraged. So David, based on what God's done in the past, he's encouraged to go into the future. I want you to see what happens next. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David in his, with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. 
Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. So he couldn't fight the battle the way Saul was trying to fight it. He, then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So he used what God gave him. You know, I don't know what God's put in your hand, but what he had was a staff and some stones and a sling. Okay, not a slingshot, a sling, a little differently. And the stones, they say, stones in this area, when you go there, um, they say that they are the size and weight of billiard balls. So imagine a billiard ball. And they would say the average guy who's good with a sling can throw uh, a stone of that weight about 100 miles an hour. Would anyone like to get hit in the forehead with a billiard ball at 100 miles an hour? Pass, right? No, thank you. So we, got, we see the background here. He's going to have this sling, and then watch what happens. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, and you may want to mark this down and you may want to say your own version of this to whatever giant you're fighting. He says this, you come to me with the sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Verse 36, this day, 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. You can just see this great, humble confidence and belief in God. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. And that was the last thing that went through his mind. <laughs> See, and if you're paying attention, the stone sank into his forehead and he, fell, and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and he killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Why? Why after clearly killing him with the stone, do you have to cut the head off? You want to make sure the thing is dead. And this is right. And if it's a picture of a giant in your life, I mean, how many of you are trying to manage a giant in your life? We try to manage sin instead of kill sin. David says, I'm going to sever it. I'm going to cut it off. When the Philistines saw that their companion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. Look at verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. I want us to see a couple things as we close here. The first is I want you to see that when David won the victory, it was a blessing for everybody. Do you see this? Because this is gonna be how it is in your own life. When David decides I'm gonna step up and I'm going to fight this giant in my life, guess who benefits? Well, first of all, God is seen as great. And that's what's, by the way, that's what's gonna happen. You begin to stand up, you fight some of these giants in your life and you're gonna glorify God. And by the way, when, when we say glorify God, all we mean is make God look great. 
The second thing is we see it was a blessing to David. So it honors God, it blesses David. It's like, okay, now David's a public figure. Now David's on his way to king. Now David's a hero. Now everyone knows who he is. Now it's even gonna be easier as he transitions later to being a king. But then it is a blessing to everybody he's connected with. It ends up being a blessing to all of Israel. Listen, this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Do you understand that? That when Christ won the decisive battle through his sinless life, his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection, the most amazing thing is that he wins this victory. And he could have just won it and kept it for himself. But he wins this victory and then he decides, I think I'm gonna share it with this with you. Isn't that so powerful? It's like, okay, what am I going to do with all of this forgiveness? Here, you can have some. Would you like some? You can have some. What am I gonna do? Okay, I'm gonna save millions and millions and millions of people across time. They're gonna be my brothers and sisters. Guess what? They're also gonna be your brothers and sisters. So part of what you get from the cross is a massive family, it's yours. It's gonna take you all eternity to get to know these millions of people. And what am I gonna do with the Holy Spirit? Because now I've got the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna, oh, I'll give the Holy Spirit to every Christian. Every good gift that you have is from the cross. If you're a Christian, it's the grace of God in your life. And it's the, the joy that Christ wins a victory and shares it with us. Do you know that's the oldest story that anyone ever tells? It's the story of David and Goliath, but it's the story that they found in caves. Do you know that? The oldest story that we know written down is this story. Man fights dragon. Dragon's hiding gold. Man kills dragon, gets gold, brings it back, shares it with everybody he loves. If you're rightly oriented in the world, that will hit you and you'll say, that's exactly what I would do. That would be the best thing for me to do. There's nothing better for me to do than to fight the things in my life, get what they've been withholding from me and everyone I love and bring it back and share it with everyone. David fights a battle that other people could not fight and other people would not fight. And what we need you to do is we need you to fight battles other people can't fight and other people won't fight. This week we celebrated, God bless it, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, okay? Uh, let me tell you the story of that for, for yeah. Let me tell you the story of that. The story of that is 50 years of mostly women, God bless you, tip of the spear, women fighting for the unborn for 50 years. Well, why do you fight for the unborn? Because we can't see them. They were invisible till the ultrasound, can't see them. They don't have a voice, so somebody else has to fight for them. You need to fight for your kids. It's like, you need to make some decisions today you need to fight some generational battles so that you're, you don't wake up and it's like your 17-year-old son's dealing with the exact same thing you dealed with at 17. And it's because you never dealt with it. What are we doing as a church? Look, building this building downtown, I don't talk about it too much, it's hard. It's expensive. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of people who don't want us there. But we are fighting this battle for the next generation. It's like whoever the next pastor is, it's like, here's the keys, it's paid off, you're welcome. Because people back in 2022 fought a battle so that we would have a lighthouse and an ark in downtown and you don't have to worry about it. And so here's the thing, what David does is he cuts off the head of this giant in his life. He severs it. And then guess what he does? He brings it home. What heads do you need to cut off and bring home. Some of you, you need to go home this week, you need to do it somehow in your own life, and you need to go home to your wife and your kids and you need to hold it up. This is the head of alcoholism. 
and it took down grandma and it took down grandpa and it took down my dad. And I wanted to tell you guys, I cut it off. For others of you, it's materialism and it's the love of money. You just go home, you go, I'm sorry. This is how mom and dad raised me. It's all I ever knew. I have had a love for money and it has affected my decision-making as a dad. It's affected my work schedule and I'm sorry and I cut it off. Some of you need to hold it up and go, it's anxiety. And all COVID did was amplify it and magnify it. And I've been so scared and I'm not gonna be an anxious person. We're not gonna do this. Others of you, it's passivity. Passivity, men. And abdicating responsibility, it's the story of your family and you go, I cut it off. I heard a story last night, a lady from our church, she's sitting in here just like you are and she goes home. And she says, we have to have dinner as a family. We gotta sit around the table tonight, we gotta talk. She puts, sits the kids down, the husband down. She says, guys, I've noticed in our family there's been a lack of respect for authority. She says, and you know what I've realized? It's my problem, I don't respect dad. And I, the way that I've treated him in front of you guys is wrong and I'm sorry and it's stopping tonight. It's ending with me. What does that have to be for you guys? Because we know what happens. You don't, I'll tell you the story, here's the story. If you don't fight the giants in your life, here's what happens, you end up in the wilderness for the rest of your life. And same with everybody who's connected to you. That's what happened. We don't, want to, we don't want to go into the promised land. We don't want to fight the giants. Well, then 40 years in the wilderness for you, walking in a circle, walking in a cul-de-sac. And so listen, we are here to help you. If there's a giant that you want to fight, we're going to fight with you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to resource you. We're going to get you what you need, but you got to fight the giants in your life. And then you share that blessing with everybody who, who you know and love. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to sing a song called The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And it's a song about fighting our giants. It's a song about fighting our battles, doing it on our knees and doing it together because the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we just give you this story of King David. Lord, we thank you that it points us to Christ, our great savior, our great hero, our great Lord, our great king, our great shepherd who has fought every battle for us. We thank you. Lord, I pray that whatever the battles are that we need to fight, Lord, whatever heads we need to bring home and say, well, this is done in my life and in our family, Lord. That you would give us the grace, Lord, that we would see because you fought the greatest battle and won the greatest war, we now don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.